Hey, everyone. It's Amber. In 2019, I began work on a podcast series that explored how historically marginalized groups were underrepresented in the IBD space. The plan was to record episodes during the spring conferences of 2020 with a goal of publishing in the fall of that same year. As you already know, those conferences didn't happen. I pivoted to recording remotely and finally published the seven-episode series in the spring of 2021. What you're about to hear next is an episode of that series, which is called Healthcare Disparities in IBD. I'm the host and producer, but it's a different animal from about IBD with a focused topic and some voices that haven't been heard on this feed before. Much has changed since the production of this series in 2021, but our discussions are still relevant in so many ways. While working on this show, I learned more things than I can list, and I hope you get a little something out of it too. Thanks for listening. Welcome to episode four of Healthcare Disparities in IBD. I'm your host, Amber Tresca. In this limited series, we're exploring how inequalities in the healthcare system affect people in minority groups who live with an IBD. We continue this discussion in learning about how the signs and symptoms of digestive disease are minimized and misdiagnosed in people of color. There's a variety of structural and individual biases at work to perpetuate disparities. My guest is Dr. Cedric Pulliam, who lives with Crohn's disease. He has significant experience in public health and is currently a senior public health advisor at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Pulliam has spent his career working with and advocating for groups that are marginalized in our society. His work in global health, LGBTQ plus and human rights policy, public policy and public health make him the perfect person to discuss access to care for minority groups in the IBD space. He draws some parallels between how policies and resources used in the HIV AIDS community could be a model for use in other disease states, including IBD. From Atlanta, Georgia, let's talk to Dr. Cedric Pulliam. Cedric, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Amber. So I wonder if we could start first with your background and the work that you do. Would you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so my background is a very intricate, interesting story. Um, One of the key pieces of my background is that, one, I studied political science and international relations. And so you gather all of that, a lot of international global experience in undergrad. I studied abroad several times. What came out of that was federal government career. Um, I worked with Air Force as a civilian. I then worked with the Congressional Research Service doing um, comprehensive immigration reform research for Congress. And from there, grad school overseas in Budapest. And when coming back, and that was also in international relations and security, Um, I worked with the Department of Homeland Security, specifically in the Citizenship and Immigration Services, working on refugee um, research for the European and the Asia region. And specific topics were LGBTQ and human rights research and training material for refugee and asylum officers. And then I went to USAID doing international development and 
They audited policy and donor engagement with the United Nations and the European Aid um, Agency. And then I did global health um, and HIV AIDS work, focusing mainly on health data, global health data with the World Health Organization. From there, State Department, and I worked at PEPFAR for four years, and I did multilateral engagement. I did human rights and key populations work and was one of um, Ambassador Burks' advisors, um, mid-level advisors there. And now I'm at the CDC. And at the CDC, I do public health and specifically HIV AIDS prevention. And I'm a subject matter expert in testing diagnostics or HIV testing diagnostics and HIV self-testing modalities. So very interesting <laughs> career experience and work that I do and have done in the past. But yeah, that is my summary of my career trajectory. <laughs> it's like this super amazing to me. Your career has encompassed so many different things, um, mostly involving public health, it sounds like. Yes. But, you, you know, you're also a young man. So I'm a little bit like you've, <laughs> you've had a career that sounds like you're talking about four or five different people. <laughs> exactly. It, it is like this every time I discuss it because it's so all over the place. And then I'm going to be kind of honest, Amber, it wasn't like I was at these places a long period of time. I was actually doing a lot of the time um, in the early part, I was in the programs that were created for federal government for younger people. So like the stay in school program that then transitioned to the pathways program and they all fed into your career, your, your federal career years. And so it was great to be a local DC, Maryland, Virginia resident to be able to start that early and continue it on throughout undergrad and grad school. You also live with Crohn's disease. So at some point in the middle of all of this exciting work that you're doing, you were diagnosed with Crohn's. Can you tell me about your journey so far? Absolutely. Yes. So living with Crohn's disease has been a journey. So I'm glad you coined it as a journey because it has been a, a, a roller coaster journey. <laughs> it wasn't until I literally had like zero symptoms growing up, nothing in childhood and things like that after the abnormal. It wasn't until college, I just started experiencing just very bad, like stomach pains and stomach issues was just not realizing what's going on. And a lot of doctors was like, oh, you're in college, you're drinking. So it's the alcohol. And I just was going through so many ups and downs. And it was emotionally draining too, because you're like, what is going on with my body? <laughs> like, over the years, so that was in 2008, and over the years, it was literally just like, there's no issue with you, you know, try to curb your diet, don't eat dairy, blah, 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 blah. All these kind of scapegoating tactics that providers were, or specialists were providing me as their, as their treatment plan. And I was still having the issues, and it was episodic. It was not like every day. It will come, and it will come with a vengeance. <laughs> so... I said, something has to be medically wrong with me. And I kept trying to go to different specialists. And it was definitely difficult overseas in Budapest because it was like the insurance thing and like a medical provider that wasn't just the doctor or the nurse on duty at the university. And so it was that whole year, I just didn't get any care. I didn't even go to a doctor really until I got back to the United States. And so it was so detrimental to my psyche, I would say, because it's like something is wrong with me. 
I'm trying to do what I need to do to get care, but no one's listening to me. So it's like I'm screaming to like a bo- empty box or something and <laughs> like, help, like help me please. But like no one's really listening. So it wasn't until around 2016, 17, because in 2015, it was so bad that I had just started at the State Department and it was around every September, the United Nations General Assembly happens in New York City. I was working that with the team and I was literally inside. I was dying. I couldn't show it externally. I had to still show up. I had to run around Manhattan like a crazy person to like a million events that week with my principal and with the ambassador. And I was literally, when I would get into my room, I would be in tears because it was so bad. Like my stomach problems were so catastrophically bad. Um, Amber and I could not bear another day. I flew home early because I could not take another day. I told my boss, I don't know what's wrong. I just need to go home. 2016, I did a lot of travel globally. So it was so hard to kind of meet my care needs and work needs. And so in 2017, I finally got a, a referral, a new referral, met a new GI doc. And then got an endoscopy and a colonoscopy conducted. And there was irregularities in my colonoscopy and in the endoscopy, he was like, this is a problem. Something is definitely wrong. I was about to travel to Geneva and I was literally on the plane or yeah, I was literally boarding the plane and he called and he said, this is Crohn's disease. (laughs) And I was like, huh? And I was like, um... Doc, I'm about to be in Geneva. I'm about to fly to Geneva. I'll be back in a week and we can discuss. <laughs> and so I, that's when I got my diagnosis. It's technically 2018 because this was in December of 2017. So remember, I started in 2008 talking about this. So it took a decade for me. I was glad to finally find someone that would listen to me, that would say, regardless of what everyone else has said and done, that was the first time I ever had got a colonoscopy or endoscopy. No one had ever offered that to me as an option. Um, They didn't see my age being young. They didn't see a need for it. They said there was no family history. (laughs) And and this comes up with uh, health inequities, especially when race uh, comes into the picture. Because a lot of the times with, you know, Black and, you know, my family is Black and also Native American, Okanichi, Band of the Saponi Nation to be exact. And a lot of those cultures, we don't have the, the, the opportunity to know all of our health history within our family lineage. We barely can know our lineage in our family, to be quite honest, for the most part, unless you really have a luxury of like my father, who's done a lot of our family historian work with no family history of any GI or gastro issues. Like most of those doctors was just like, like, this is not what you have, you just need to do whatever. So in summary, my journey was an experience. It was, <laughs> I mean, I've heard worse, <laughs> unfortunately. I've definitely heard worse some other patient stories. But I would say for me, it was a lesson learned um, to be a patient advocate for myself and for others. And, and to be quite honest, I do more of this for others because I know what I went through in my story. You know, my IBD journey is 
in in a book, if I wrote a book, the chapter will be chaos. <laughs> yeah, I would say that a decade is one of the longer journeys that I've heard. And it's really shocking to me that still in this day and age, it does take so long for people to get diagnosed. But as you said, that partially this is where health equity comes into the conversation because most people with IBD don't have family members that also have the disease. I have heard from a lot of Black patients that they were even told, well, Black people don't get IBD. So how much did that sort of play into your uh, your very long diagnosis journey, do you think? So... For the years and I, the years when I was in college, I went to you know when I went to college at Elon University in North Carolina. So I will say that my primary doctor at, in that in that time frame um, was a white male. The GI doc in that time frame that I was referred to was a white male. I never had any black medical care team whatsoever in those years. It wasn't until like now, currently that I actually have medical a medical care team that looks and identifies like me. <laughs> Being black and coming in to, I remember the first time going into gastro uh, specialist like office or you know clinic or whatever, it was a little jarring because it wasn't like I was being dismissed, but it was like I wasn't being the focal point or being attentive towards by the actual team, the, the the PA and the actual GI doc was sort of like in their own, like I remember it so vividly, they were in their own little sphere, their own little hub, like hub. And I was just there on the, on the uh, bed. <laughs> so like, I felt very awkward in that situation. And it necessarily never came out about, you know, I'm black, but I think that it's the rural South. I mean, to be quite honest, like I've experienced so many inequities blatantly in my face and indirectly. That's not in my face of my, you know, my race and ethnicity. So it wouldn't surprise me that how is this a black, black patient, the stereotype that black folk can, the myth that black folk don't get IVD. I had heard plenty of that, not then, but later on. And it made sense. I was like, maybe that's why they kept dismissing me. Like, you don't get this. <laughs> your, your, your people, your black people don't get this. And so I don't know if that was the direct, you know, issue or reason, but I definitely felt uh, uh, awkward, non-accepting kind of like environment when I was in that office that first time in 2008 and 2000. Mm-hmm. And I didn't go back. And um, to be real honest, like, I don't know if I accepted at that point that this is going to be something that I have to deal with. And when it comes and it goes and it comes and it goes, I just got to deal with it and push through. Mm-hmm. I think that's the mentality I had. I mean, I was 19 years old or going on 19 years old at that time. So I was probably in the mindset that it is what it is. Yeah, which is a shame, though, because in an office where you felt welcomed and with healthcare providers that you felt were on your side, they would have let you know, hey, if this happens again, come back. Like, you know, we'll keep looking, we'll work together to figure this out. But it sounds like you were um, what they call lost to follow up. Yes, yes. 
in our in our lingo at CDC that LTFU <laughs> lost to follow up is definitely or look in our, the the Nicholas or not in careless in our epidemiolo epidemiological terminology. I yeah, I, I definitely was on that list for plenty of the different providers because I was just like, I'm not coming back to this crazy person or this person is not listening to me. I'm not coming back to this person. Like, cause one thing I do know is that I have rights as a, as a patient. So I was like, I'm not about to belittle myself to this kind of treatment. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was a lot of my <laughs> sentiment with the, within the first five or six years of this journey, trying to figure out what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And during this time, I'm assuming that you didn't have anybody around you or knew anybody that was experiencing similar. So it sounds like you, you almost didn't really have even like a sounding board, somebody that could say, yeah, you know, this not right. Maybe you should see this specialist or, or, you know, talk, ask them about this. Zero people mm -hmm. at all. I didn't even, until my little cousin started at UNC Chapel Hill and she got, she was hospitalized and had all these issues and it was come to find out ulcerative colitis until then, no, nobody. Mm -hmm. I will say this, as a college student, I probably should have done more research, but as a college student, you have so much, like this is first year and uh, sophomore year. So you have so much other things and college life, campus life, all that kind of other distractions that I probably should have researched. If I was in a mindset now or a few years ago, back then, I probably would have researched. I probably would have found things on my own and I probably would have done what I can do now. But back then at that younger age, it's just like, I just want to be an, a, a young adult or new adult and I want to live the college experience. And that was, that was something I was like, probably just not in that mindset then at that age to really do. But I didn't even know about the IPD community. I didn't know about advocates. I didn't know about any of this like whole platform, whole community. I didn't even know it existed back then. And so, and I had zero peers, family, staff, faculty at, the, at college or anyone that I knew that had openly or was open to me about having uh, IBD or gastro issues whatsoever. You are also a member of the gay community. You're having a foot in so many different worlds. Have you been able to form a community around you or find a community in which that you do feel welcome? Ever since, yeah. So yeah, I'm open, open uh, black gay male and been out. Sorry, excuse me. I hate that term. <laughs> For the viewers, I don't like the, I don't, uh, aligned with coming out i'm actually letting you in because i'm letting you into who i identify in who i identify as and who who i may love and how i may you know show love or express love and so i'm letting you in not coming out i love that that terminology i don't necessarily align with being gay and having crohn's disease whew, it is <laughs> When I first got the diagnosis, I was like, okay, this makes sense. Because to be quite honest, when you have gastro issues and you have Crohn's, IBS, or you have um, UC, and you have like things like with your stomach that you can't control, I just be very clear cut and just straight to the point because I'm a very clear cut person. <laughs> 
bottoming or being a receiving partner in the sexual relationship is a very difficult thing. You can't prepare or plan when you don't have control of the unexpected. And that's the reality of it. And there is very seldom, you know, tools, resources, GI docs that can align with that and understand that or even live and experience that to be able to discuss that and openly discuss that. We still have like infectious disease doctors that barely want to talk about sex <laughs> and that's their everyday job. So the real, the reality is that in, in, in their MD training, are they even provided that? Most of them have no training on even LGBT health. <laughs> like, let's be very clear. That's yeah. not, a, not a part of the like medical degree curriculum, or at least it hasn't been for some time. And so those that are providing our care now, either they got that after their MD and then, you know, the um, continued education and credits and whatnot that they must get to um, re retain their accreditations and board certs and whatnot. They don't have that in their their base curriculum and their um, education. And so LGBT plus, LGBTQ plus health is like a new phenomenon for providers. <laughs> and so when you come to them with questions, they're like, let me get back to you at that. Or they simply say, I don't know. Yeah. And I, I respect the uh, a GI doc to say, I don't know. The GI doc I have now in Atlanta, Georgia, he has a lot to say. He's not necessarily um, a, a, a gay male himself, but he's treated and cared for plenty of black gay male and other parts of the spectrum of the LGBT spectrum patients that he has done his due diligence to equip himself with knowledge, learn from the patients, create some you know support groups, particularly surrounding LGBTQ plus specifically racial minority LGBTQ plus IBD patients and those kind of things in his own practice can be done everywhere, but they're not. Mm -hmm. When I publicly announced that it, I, I was living with Crohn's and received a diagnosis in 2018, that is when I started seeing and hearing other people's stories, women, uh, you know, younger adults and mentees and, you know, people I work with in the public health and HIV space and, their family members and their people. And that's when it just, the floodgates opened of like people living with an IBD and like being able to understand and to grow and to learn. That's just been in the past two years for me. <laughs> so, and so it's like, uh, it's an overwhelming but loving experience, right? But again, to be able to align with, you know, how I identify and, you know, being and living as a gay male and living with Crohn's, it's, it is a everyday fight to realize how this impacts you mentally, emotionally, physically, holistically for all social determinants of health, to be quite frank. It really does. It impacts you so much. And you have to, you know, one of the things in my therapy sessions that I, that I kind of grasped with in the beginning after the diagnosis was I don't necessarily need to devalue my body or devalue myself to uplift a partner. If a partner can't meet me at a place of alignment and understanding, then they're not meant for me. And so 
positions, bottom top, all those things when it comes to sexual relations in the um, the gay community um, and living with Crohn's or uh, another IBD, you have to realize this. It's a conversation. It's not easy. It's difficult. I work in HIV every single day. And it's the same thing with a person with HIV. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's like my first date. I need to be like, oh, I, I'm living with Crohn's. Like, I don't think <laughs> a person living with HIV owes it to a new person that they're dating. I live with, I'm living with HIV either. And that's just the reality of this. And it does make or break relationships. Like I've been broken up with, or I've been told I can't date you because of this. Mm -hmm. And so, and they don't understand or don't want to understand. And that's great. That's fine for me because I don't want, I don't want to lead a path with someone who won't be able to align and accept this diagnosis and me living with Crohn's versus just completely, you know, dismissing it you know i want them to be understanding want to learn want to grow with me in this journey and so yeah that's that's kind of culmination of like the ups downs the pros and cons more cons than anything that i (laughs) described just now but that's that's how it's been captured for me and it's it it's sad but it's also it's a learning and growing um opportunity for me because i know how to go about those conversations when it does come to that like what restaurant are we going to choose or, Oh, I don't feel so well. So I got to cancel on you today or, you know, things like that. And as you go along the process, there's not a lot of resources to be very clear. There's not a lot of uh, tools out there. And then in this telehealth space, there's even less opportunities of those resources. Even talking with my current GI doc, I'm like, what can we do to help, you know, amplify, (laughs) the tools and resources out there for the LGBT, um, Q, IBD community, because it's just, it's very seldom, very few resources out there. And if they exist and you're listening, share them with us. Amber and I are ready to, we are ready to review, discuss, and explore the tools that you have, because they may exist in other countries. I'm talking the United States context, because I'm not familiar um, globally, but the U.S. context is very slim pickings when it comes to LGBTQ resources in the IBD community. And that's for providers and for actual patients. Yeah, and that has been my experience as well. Even trying to do some research in order to write an article at, that can inform patients. It's just not there. It's just not available. A lot of times in my work, I'm trying to help empower patients. So I'm trying to help patients work better with their providers, ask questions, things like that. But I also like to turn this around. So let me ask you this, in terms of resources and what providers can be doing, what should people who care for those who live with IBD and specifically in the LGBTQ plus community, what can be done in order to for providers to have more education and to provide better resources, better support, even just a more welcoming office space mm-hmm. for their patients? So one of the things I think that IBD, this is where the IBD space can learn from the HIV space. Not to say that we are trans, we are, we are communicating that this is a gay issue or gay thing, because I don't want that message to come across with anything that I say, because I think it was a disservice to the HIV AIDS epidemic 
um, of it being titled and being coined that. And so I wanted to make that very clear before I describe what I'm going to say. But I feel learning from the HIV experience and the career that I've had, because domestically volunteering and working in a space, I've been in HIV since about 2008, 2009. So it's going on 10, 11 years. And so for me, I think it's like the, the, the tools and resources. So like you said, let's start with the actual like office. Let's, let's, let's just say pre-COVID. <laughs> COVID. Let's just, cause it's a lot different now because, you know, you remove tables and things like that. So yeah. pre-COVID, most of the offices I went into, I remember pamphlets, white women, uh, maybe a white male. No one looked like me. Yeah. That's one thing. So you have to be diversified with how your, you know, pamphlets and toolkits and guide docu- guidance documents and any documentation or publication has to be reflective and representative of the actual community of those living with that particular therapeutic issue like IBD. And so that's one thing. So you have to diversify your publication and tools. Second, when I enter office and, you know, talk to the receptionist, receptionist should be a little bit more equipped in knowledge and information. A lot of times they're not. It's okay that a lot of places you temp agencies, that's cool, have a guidance document with them at the front desk, something like that. Now, going specifically to LGBT plus uh, components, when it comes to providers, I don't know what association, what pharma company or what entity it is or needs to be, but there has to be uh, LGBTQ IBD health curriculum created at some point, some juncture, there has to be. And it necessarily is going to be different for lesbians. It's going to be different for gay, bisexual, trans, and other uh, identities within that spectrum. But especially, and I'm talking for what I identify as the gay community, it is so drastically needed because the way they deliver and produce their messaging um, and their treatment plan and their care plan has to be adjusted and it has to be adjusted to that person as well as how that person identifies because in plenty of married gay couples, right? (laughs) Let's just be clear. You have to be able to walk them through with, after the diagnosis, walk them through how this would be. And if they can't, if they don't, if they're a cisgender heterosexual provider, a doctor that's not their lived experience. So they're just going to be going off the the whim and just provide like, this is what's going to be like for you now. And that's not going to be the case necessarily because you are not putting it into their context. You're just providing that, that kind of general, what you learned in medical school, to be quite honest, and you're in your residencies and whatnot. And so it's a lot to be done. And you said it yourself, research is difficult to do for LGBT plus um, and IBD uh, nexus that work that nexus between the two. It's hard because it's not out there. So and and if it is, it's very minimal. So we have to do a better job of creating more of a I don't know focus on you know IBD and LGBT um, or IBD and gay or whatever it has to be. But there has to be some kind of focus in curriculum and their residencies and their specialty programs and their postdoc fellowship programs, things like that to really equip the providers with that kind of um, knowledge and, and, and information and resources and tools. Because again, your care plan needs to be equipped to you 
as the patient. And again, without a lived experience, it is so difficult to do that if you don't have tools and resources. There's a dire need in the tools, resources, the educational curriculum objectives, you name it, for providers, for the IBD patient advocate community. Because again, even in the, the space that I've been in, I see so many more like jaws drop or eyes get wide. And, you know, because of my experience, my own one experience where there's so many more. Because like I said, when I moved to Atlanta and I started dating, um, I started meeting people that are living with Crohn's or UC. And I was just like, wow, IBS. I was just shocked, like had no clue. That was the first instance where I started hearing people say, oh, I live with this too. And Oh, I live with this. And I'm just like, that's phenomenal because I had no clue. So many were living and experiencing this like me, but it's also says a lot that resources, tools, care plans, it's needed. It's, 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 I can't, I can't say it enough. It's so much need for this particular space. And if we don't address it, it just continues to be a need. Are, are we going to say enough is enough and address it? Or are we going to continue to do what we're doing and just let it go on the wayside? Yeah. And to your point, I try to get to as many of the IBD-focused medical meetings as I can, either in person or following along virtually with the resources that they provide. And I don't think at a medical meeting I have ever seen LGBTQ plus topics on the curriculum. Yeah. You've, you've been in the field and you've been, you know, a patient advocate for many more years than I have. And you have done research and you work in this space very, um, very closely. And you know that this is a need. And that's uh, honestly, that's why we're here today, right? That's why we're having this conversation because, you know, I, I've, I've talked to so many different people in the patient advocate space mostly. And that's why I say women and specifically black women, but women want to save this world um, one day because the the women in the patient advocacy space that I've spoken with really have been pushing and uplifting and increasing my my courage and and bravery to be very outspoken and to be you know share my story and not holding back and being as explicit as I can with my patient advocacy and it's been crazy to see how much attention and how much awareness is bringing because, you know, people haven't realized because it's not their everyday life. It's not their journey. And so when it's not your journey, sometimes you are, you have the the shades on of others, others experience. And that's just the reality of how this works. And so now that I'm very open and vocal about this, even though I let my family in many, many years ago, they may see, you know, this pot, they may hear this podcast or they may see an article or some title of a post. And when it's like gay or that's still some stigma around it. Right. And so I'm okay with it. Trust me, Amber, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally okay with it. But again, it may, it may, it may, you know, you know, rub some people wrong or something like that. And I'm okay with that too. But, and that's also could be a major issue, right? Uh, who knows how, Historically, maybe this has been maybe the leaders within the, this space were homophobic. Mm -hmm. Could be a possibility. 
yeah, I mean, every day I'm learning more about the history, personal and otherwise, of the people that we have looked up to because of whatever that they have added to the scientific discourse, but then later that you learn that their personal views were pretty abhorrent or something like that. It's just, it's been an eye-opening few years. (laughs) I can't harp on that enough because we saw it. We we saw this same thing happen in the HIV space and, 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 you know, a lot of the, what the gay disease and the focus so much being on the LGBT community was sometimes in a kind of evil tactic for some of the researchers and some of the, you know, folks in the very beginning of the epidemic. And so again, learning from that experience and having the knowledge of how they thought personal views really being in the kind of central points of their kind of medical and and professional viewpoints, it's, a, it's probably the same kind of array of things in the IBD space and who knows the, the, the kind of, uh, inventors <laughs> or the um the curators of the the, the curriculum and the, the the work that gi docs do every day and how you know they they treat their patients and who knows what their beliefs were and that's something that you know you have to unpack and and over time in any field that's something you have to unpack and, and understand and fix it is it's it's insidious because we don't even we don't even know what the scope of it is yeah and one reason why I'm doing this show is to try to connect the community better, the diverse community within the IBD community, because you all have been underserved for so long. It's It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and to pick your brain. And I hope that we can have many, many more conversations. And I hope uh, once the pandemic is done that, uh, you know, we can go to dinner and just yes. <laughs> get, to, get to know yes, each other a yes. little bit better. Um, yeah. So it's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time and your attention and your advocacy and the work that you've already done and the work that is to come in the IBD community. Thank you so much, Cedric. Thank you so much, Amber. Thank you for the platform and space and the air to listen to me and my story um, and my advocacy. I really appreciate it. And thank you, viewers. Um, I really appreciate you as well for taking time to listen to us today. And, you know, I definitely will come back and we'll be discussing further topics or further things within the IBD space. But thank you so much, Amber. I really appreciate it. IBD affects every aspect of our lives. However, people in the LGBTQ community have very little in the way of research and resources to help them improve their quality of life and manage their IBD better. But even amongst those who are most knowledgeable about IBD, there's still not much known about how these diseases affect people in diverse populations who have different needs. You can follow Dr. Pulliam on Twitter and Instagram and connect with him on LinkedIn. I will put all the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. I'm Amber Tresca, reminding you that healthcare is a human right. Healthcare Disparities in IBD is a production of Malintel Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresco. Theme music, mix, and sound design is by Cooney Studio.